2: The United States of the mid-19th century is ripe with stories of its timeless legends and colorful characters who helped weave the historical events that defined the great American West. The stories and movies about the adventures of lonesome cowboys or men with black hats or brave lawmen of the Old West who clashed frequently in conflicts such as the OK Corral, the dusty streets of Virginia City or the quick justice that was meted out in Dodge City continue to capture our imagination. And when we talk of cowboys and other figures of the Wild West, we immediately picture a man on horseback. But no cowboy would roam the West or walk the streets without a gun. And such a gritty figure would most likely wield a very distinctive long-barreled revolver called the Colt 45. In fact, no gun in the Old West was as important or left such an indelible mark as the Colt single-action army revolver, or more widely known today simply as the Colt Peacemaker. It was said that God made man, but Samuel Colt made them equal. And why it was called the Peacemaker and the Great Equalizer is as related to business and market dominance today as a cowboy is related to its boots the Colt 45 leveled the competitive playing field because it equalized the relationship amongst fighting males. Especially in the strong honor culture of the Old West, where discipline and honor was enforced through one-on-one combat or duels, deriving from even the faintest slight. So much so that the reason people used to be more polite back then could be argued that it was not because they were nicer people, it's because you might get killed otherwise. And that, as my fellow co-host Chris Beal would say, was considered to be a great inconvenience. And business came out of that culture so much that software today is really the equivalent of strapping on a six-shooter and a Colt 45, and for most aspects, really equalizing the business playing field. Because even a little guy, without an awful lot of capital or physical fighting power, just armed with software packs enough punch so that he or she is a threat to any larger company, or at least can compete enough to make their own mark and begin to influence and impact a market on their own. And software is the 2020 example of the Colt 45 Peacemaker. Anyone can attack anyone else in business, even without saddlebags of venture money. So it makes complete sense then that the company that's trying to make money from its innovation needs to dominate a market as quickly as possible. Because to dominate quickly means to dissuade the many soon to come ankle biters, freshly armed with software themselves, who just arrived in town and now want to pick a gunfight with you. So in this episode, Chris arms us with a little knowledge, a little wisdom, and some good old fashioned street fighting tricks to hold our own and to grow our lead after we embark on a market dominance mission. Welcome to this week's episode of the Market Dominance Guys entitled High Noon, Facing the Black Hats who are trying to take your market.
0: question is, is it okay to tell a sales rep how to do their job, what tools to use or technologies to use, process to follow? And it comes all the way down to this ancient question about what is the relationship of sales itself as a function to a company and its strategy. So under the old paradigm... Which came to us from, as we were talking about before, the roots of capitalism, mm-hmm. where capital is deployed to create the means of production, that is, factories that's full of machines with people tending the machines, or, or maybe with some people doing things by hand or whatever. But capital is deployed in order to build something repeatably, and that something turns into inventory, finished goods inventory, and that inventory must be disposed of and turned back into cash in order to make the cycle work, right? So what that always suggested was, well, sales is this external function that just sits out there somewhere in the world. And as long as they dispose of the inventory in a way that's reasonably efficient and they don't take too big a cut, then it's not really relevant to the future of the business. You know, The inventory must be disposed of, sales must be good enough. But we certainly don't want it inside the company because then it turns into overhead. That is when when there's nothing to sell, then we carry the salesperson. So, in the, the classic evolution of business through, I'll call it the capitalist revolution that occurred with, as, as a concomitant of the, of the industrial revolution hand in hand, we ended up with this model of the salesperson as effectively kind of an independent contractor. And it shows up in how we compensate salespeople, where we compensate them with variable compensation with commissions based on what they sell. And the ultimate most respected kind of salesperson is the pure commission rep who is a lone wolf who does whatever they do and they run their territory the way that they want to run it. And it doesn't really matter if it's some mix of their Rolodex, their charm, bribes given and taken, whatever it happens to be, uh-huh. now that's uh, in the form of, say, nice dinners or whatever it happens to be, right? Uh-huh. It doesn't really matter because ultimately, if the sales rep decides to put more of their own money into selling and take, as a result, take less net. La vie, who really cares, right? Yeah, right. And so, in this new formulation, where there is no finished goods inventory, where all interesting products are manufactured instantaneously at the point of consumption, which is what's true of software. This is back to the question, I guess. I don't remember whose it is? It was somebody, Seth, Roden, or somebody talking about software eating. Maybe it was um, Mark Andreessen said software will, you know, is eating the world, right? right? And what it means is software eats the world because there is no need to carry finished goods inventory. That's at its core why software eats, eats the world because it, you don't need any of it. I, actually, there never is any software. In that sense, right? It doesn't exist as a deliverable. You just experience it by interacting with it. And then if, since software has moved into the cloud, you don't even need the damn hardware anymore. So now it's a magic trick where you say I want some. Now I can go out right now. In fact, we're doing it right now. We're in Zoom video. I don't recall ever becoming aware of or interacting with or downloading or getting a machine for any software for Zoom video. (laughs) It never it never happens, right? And yet we're consuming something that is as sophisticated as any remote video experience ever was, the kind where you would buy a screen and put it up in a conference room and you'd have hardware to do this and that. So software eats the world primarily because it doesn't exist, which is its its main strength, but it blows up conceptually the relationship between sales and the company that's trying to make money from its innovation and that needs to dominate a market in order to stay alive because with increased fluidity, as software goes down and eats the world, software also basically says, and anyone can attack anyone in business. Everyone's armed with, it's, it's software is the equivalent of a six shooter and the Colt 45. Now, the gun that tamed the West, right? Why? Because a little guy without an awful lot of physical fighting power suddenly was the equal of any man, yeah. the, the great equalizer, right? The great equalizer was the Colt 45. It equalized the relationship among fighting males and in the honor cultures out of which the United States drew its stock, its root stock came out of a number of honor cultures where discipline was enforced through duel. Mm. And so, you know, the, the reason people used to be polite was not because they were nicer people it's because you might get killed otherwise and that was considered to be a great inconvenience So yeah. there is a sort of universal discipline mechanism which is you get your honor as questions and something had to happen, right? So here we we came out of that culture and we had an equalizer and now software is a great equalizer among business. And businesses that don't understand this, that think that they're protected by the, the old protections, which all looked like capital and access to supply chain, uh-huh. end up being threatened by businesses that have no need for supply chain, that have no need for capital. In fact, you're seeing that even in the venture finance software world nowadays, venture capitalists will no longer fund the creation of software. Think about that. Now, 20 years ago, venture capital was the primary way we funded the creation of innovative software. As the software revolution was built, I'll go back to the beginning of my career So, in, I did my first startup in 1983 and we had a little bit of software that a guy had written in his basement, so to speak, actually sitting on the edge of his waterbed in Boulder, Colorado. And it was just enough to intrigue one of the top venture capitalists at that time. In fact, at the top of the class of 83, it was a fund called the Master's Fund in Boulder, Colorado of all places right and Boulder Boulder became and still is the number one per capita software shop in the world really yeah still is. And it all came out of that period in 1983 to 19, probably 1988, 89 when there was this flowering of software companies. And the venture capitalists at the time knew that the trick was to get them early and fund the development of their first product. So ideas were funded and turned into products back then. And then software ate the world so bad, so to speak, that even that little piece of inventory building went away. And now Anyone can build anything. I just hooked up a relationship between a 17-year-old software developer and a very experienced kind of early 40s entrepreneur out of the investment banking world who wants to revolutionize something about investment banking and a late 50s almost 60 year old guy who happens to know everything there is to know about algorithmic valuation of companies and it's entirely possible that the three of them will end up building a multi-billion dollar revolution out of nothing more than a 17 year old's time that he can find while Going to school, still going to high school, and an old guy's knowledge of how to solve a particular problem but you know, using using algorithms. You think yeah. about that. That is think about the entire investment banking industry could be blown up, destroyed by that little triad of people coming together with no venture capital whatsoever until their product is built, until they know that it works. Until it's dangerous, disruptive. You know, you want to see a Colt forty five play the role of a gatling gun. Yeah. yeah. So that What's so interesting about that in the sales world is sales is still run as though we live in a capitalist society. But we live in a post-capitalist society where there's actually no role for capital in in production anymore. Capital plays almost no role in production. Now, if you're Elon Musk, you need capital in order to do something else. Look at Tesla. That. The capital in Tesla isn't tied up in Tesla's factory. The capital is tied up in the speculative nature of how they sell their cars. In fact, that they sell their cars ahead, they actually reverse the inventory flow completely <laughs> it's backwards. You sign up to buy a Tesla two years from now when you're getting a leading-edge Tesla. Yeah. And so the orders are already there, and cash is already there, but you need more in order to de-risk the production cycle itself. The question is no longer can we make the cars? It's no longer can we dispose of the inventory. There is no inventory. The inventory is in Elon Musk's head. It's a rate of production of of a car that has never been built. Copy number zero doesn't exist. And so in his head, which he sells to the stock market and sells to the people buying the cars, there are these future cars. Want to buy my car that doesn't exist? So the car itself looks exactly like software at that point. It's a specification for a product that doesn't exist that will be delivered just in time when it's made to you off in some future please pony up a hefty deposit and i will use that deposit and go leverage that up in the stock market in order to see if i can build this car in time for you
3: yeah and yeah.
0: If, if i if i don't you wait and all this flex occurs right so we have this you know and and what did they do with their sales model they just basically said oh you know the old sales model where the car dealership is the territory blah 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 that's that do that.
1: Connect and Sell. Connect and Sell allows your sales reps to talk to more decision makers in 90 minutes than they would in a week or more of conventional dialing. Your reps can finally be 100% focused on selling since all of their CRM data entry and follow-up scheduling is fully automated within Connect and Sell's powerful platform. Your team's effectiveness will skyrocket by using Connect and Sell's teleprompter capability as they'll know exactly what to say during critical conversations. Visit connectandsell.com. You're listening to the Market Dominance Guys with your host Chris Beal of Connect and Sell and Corey Frank of Uncommon Pro.
0: We're just not going to do that. You can just go online and buy a Tesla. That's how you do it. You can go to a sh- little showroomy thing, right? but there's no salesperson there to sell to you. They don't even know how to sell a Tesla. No human being knows how to sell a Tesla. So Tesla's our software. And so there's an industry where you'd think, well, I still need the whole capital thing, for the supply chain, I need all this stuff. But it turns out you don't. You need believers in the potential value of having this piece of software that happens to roll around on four wheels, you know. So,
2: see, believers, not capital. Yeah, the believers are the new capital.
0: The believers are the new capital, and sales—the job of sales in the innovation economy—is to manufacture believers. So, the job. Say that one more time. The job of this. the job of sales in the innovation economy is to manufacture believers.
2: That's huge, Chris. That's a pivot on. A different type of currency, right? So, what we've talked about last time is that I have to wait for this congruence of the prospect and the salesperson to hit. And if they don't buy at that intersection point, right, most sales folks
0: will trash that prospect. But what's the percentage of, is it one out of 12? One out of 12 are in market in any given quarter.
2: Right. So my job is to make believers of the 11 of 12 that aren't buying and eventually close the one of 12 that is. But the the 11 of the 12 still have a a currency that doesn't show up on the immediate balance sheet that I have to be aware of, hyper aware of.
0: Yes. And we can actually, it's possible to measure the shadow balance sheet, the shadow asset. And you measure it simply by the outcome of conversations and the probability of future conversations. That is, each one of those individuals you talk with, you can come up with a probability that they'll still be around when you talk to them again, probability that they come into market. So one out of 11 turns into one out of 10, to one out of nine, to one out of eight. Eventually you compress them against the end of that cycle where it's like counting cards. I used to be a blackjack player. And as you get down to the bottom of the deck, eventually every card will be dealt, right? If if you're dealing all the way through in the abstract, right? And in the real casino, of course, they shuffle early in order to avoid this problem. That The, the uh, statistically compressed deck scares the casino because the counter can know too much. And I mean, I all, uh, this is a silly story, but I remember sitting there at the at the old, what is now the stratosphere, I'm trying to remember what it used to be called, at, in third base and playing my, my two hands, I I think I was playing at the time as being polite because there were some people at the table. And every card in the deck that was left was a 10 and the dealer was showing a six. And I knew it. So I'm just splitting ten. right? And people are freaking out. I mean, some guy wanted to get in a fist fight with me, which I could assure him. Was, there were better ways that we could interact about this question of whether I was an idiot. Right? But he was convinced I was an idiot. And I, and I I didn't have to think, you know, I just happened to know every single card left in the deck that said, I can't see it's a 10. And and therefore I'm taking tens until we run out of deck, right? Well this is what happens through that cycle. At first, only one in twelve cards, so to speak, one in twelve of people I talk to is potentially in market. And now I need to turn as many of those of the one out of twelve into believers as possible in order to fuel my movement into the market because I need to have real customers because my customers within a market are my units of referenceability and referenceability is how I lower my marginal cost and marginal risk of entering that market more deeply. Every time I get a customer and a customer is successful with my product, or even if he has bought my product and is not successful, right? That fact makes the next customer easier to sell, the next prospect easier to turn into a customer. So I have a manufacturing process where I manage manufacturing believers at an ever lower cost and an ever increased value. So that asset has this weird quality. This is why exponentials are exponentials. So the rate of flow of that asset and that new customers that are coming in and becoming customers actually increases the flow rate. And when flow rates get multiplied by increases of flow rates, yeah. that's an exponent. that Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where the curves go like this, and the amount of time it takes to dominate the market has to do with when that curve. Crosses a particular threshold, which is kind of the 50% plus one, is what people say. It's not really the case. It's really a probabilistic thing. But, you know, are, are you going to own Main Street? Is the real question. Are you going to become the standard? When you become the standard, you own that market, and you really should reduce your sales effort and take your best salespeople and put them on another market. Bad habit to leave salespeople around in dominated markets.
2: It's almost like. Uh you know, you ever play Monopoly? And there's a couple different different types of people who play Monopoly, right? The traditional way of, uh, to play Monopoly is that you land on Continental or Baltic, and you don't buy it. You save your money for the Marvin Gardens and the, the green one, the per, you know, park place, right? And there's those folks that just wait for chance, just wait for simple chance of the marketplace that they're going to land, and they're eventually going to get a monopoly on those yellows or those greens or the or the park place of the world. And And then with the aggressive, kind of the new way that you play Monopoly is wherever you land, you just buy it. Because you never know when the light blues or the pinks, et cetera, you're going to monetize every roll of the dice today, but maybe on your 17th turn, monetize your activity on your second roll of the dice. And I almost see kind of what you're postulating here, right, is that same as that, listen, Stop trying to look at the marketplace as this 1 in 12 uh, congruence of time, of fate, and that your success, is hinges on that 1 in 12th chance. No matter how good your messaging is, no matter how good the timing is, you can still only close 1 of 12. But the activities behind interactions still have a currency, still have an atomic weight that you have to see in the abstract, in the in the higher level, in the strategic view, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I love about what you're postulating here.
0: It's so interesting because it comes down to then the question of how do we manage sales? Because we're managing sales for the quarter, which is what is the tradition. Then what we get is the behavior that is within the quarter. That is the salesperson's effort goes to making their number. And when they make their number, we're happy, right? And this is what I just heard from this sales manager, actually it was a sales ops guy, but if, you know somebody in that world in this big company. And their theory is, well, if the reps like it, they can use this tool this connect and sell tool as they call it then they can use it and if they don't well that's up to them but if they don't make their number then we're going to encourage them more strongly to use this technology right and the reason for that isn't that they're foolish the reason is that they're just living in an old paradigm the old paradigm being the rep has the territory, the rep manages the territory, and the goal is to dispose of the inventory. And so as long as the rep is disposing of the inventory, which is, makes the quota, then we're all good. And it doesn't matter how they do it. It doesn't matter if they wave a magic wand or, you know, drive around in circles, it just doesn't matter. But the real question at any given point is, what are you doing with the 11 out of 12? What you're doing with the one out of 12 is you found them and they're probably going to buy unless you're an idiot, you know? So then the question is, well, what are you do them with the 11 out of 12? And the answer is, if you want to dominate a market, the 11 out of 12, when you speak to them, anybody in that set, you need to move the trust needle in your direction as a human being. That is the classic other answer is, well, we'll give them information, the 11 out of 12. Right? We'll give them information. We, we certainly don't want to waste time in a discovery call with them. Discovery conversation would be a total waste. Oh, we might spend 15 minutes or half an hour talking to them and, and then they don't buy. That's such a failure. It's so sad, right? So let's send them some marketing information, some collateral and this and that. Well, nobody has generated a trust relationship ever with a brochure. Like, I trust this brochure is a nonsense statement. It just doesn't happen. People trust people. And by the way, people trust people and people only. We are wired to trust carefully. And then we're also wired to trust increasingly until somebody shows they can't be trusted. Mm-hmm. So it's a threshold. It's a very, very funny looking curve, right? Trust works like this, it's generally negative, And then if I decide that I trust you, it goes way up like this, and I'm strongly biased in favor of interpreting everything you do as good until you betray me. And when you betray me, then my trust goes to hugely negative, and I never trust you again, right? How does trust work in, in the long run? But that's not the company's problem when they're going to market with an innovation. problem is no one knows them and no one trusts them at the beginning, yes. Yes. and they need to exchange about 600,000 bits of information with everyone in their market that they can talk to with one and only one purpose, which is to move the trust needle above where it is today through an interchange of information, Yeah, which starts with somebody making the approach, right? This is just classic sales. If you want to control your market, you have to make the approach and you have to initiate an interchange of information designed to get the other person to correctly trust you. That's, I mean, the, It's so simple when you think about it, right? And when you think about what do we measure salespeople for, exactly none of those things are measured. (laughs) Not one of those things is measured. Do we measure how many people that they interact with, how much information they interchange and whether they move the trust needle or not, and if so, how much? Because this is the essence of sealing your market off against competitors. And this is actually why at the beginning of a market domination exercise, you should talk to more people per day and look then toward the end of it for two reasons. One is you start running out of them because you're selling to some and, and learning that others are fundamentally not in your market. That it, whatever your idea of your market is, which you turn to a list, ends up having false positives in it. And it must have false positives because you can't know in advance of the conversations and getting the information back. You've been listening to Market Dominance Guys Radio, sponsored by Connect & Sell, right here in the Funnel Radio Channel, for at-work listeners like you.
1: Today's show is also brought to you by UncommonPro.com. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer or investor is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's really time to go big, you need an uncommon methodology to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. Through a modern and innovative sales and scripting tool set, we offer a guiding hand to ambitious leaders in their quest to reach market dominance. It's time to get uncommon with UncommonPro.com